It's time for another episode of It's All Relative, the podcast which discusses crime in the family. This episode is part two in the story of the Seifert family who, in the late 1960s, figuratively got in bed with the mob. If you have not heard the first episode in this case, go back to last week's post and start there. Now this is a true crime podcast. Look guys, there are some clue words there. I mentioned bad things in detail. You are free to listen or not, but don't try to castrate me verbally or litigiously. You have been warned. I am your host, Kaylee, and here is some credence to get you in the mood. So last week we had started the story of the Seifert family, and now I think you need to understand a little bit more of the power structure of the Chicago outfit in the 1960s to the 70s. Note, you may want to get out a paper and pen for flowchart construction. I will try to keep it simple. During the Depression, Felix Aldericio started hanging outside the Lexington Hotel, hoping to be sent on an errand for Al Capone. By the 1950s, Aldericio was working as an enforcer. In 1962, he even had his own hit card. The information One gleaned... One of my favorite scenes, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's a classic. The information gleaned from that conversation was later passed on to Milwaukee Phil. Uh, Milwaukee Phil and another well-known uh, Chicago uh, mobster, uh, Chucky Nicoletti, Chucky the typewriter Nicoletti, also for his typing speed, were found in a car parked on the side of the road. Police pulled up, wondering what they were doing, and oh, nothing, we're just waiting for a friend. They pull them out, they frisk them, they go through. The vehicle has hidden compartments for weapons, which had weapons in there. They had a push button that would flip the license plate over to disguise it. Another button you'd push would turn off all the lights in the car. The engine was souped up to a much higher horsepower. It was bored out and uh, was, was running at higher compression. So it was basically- This is what they call a, a work car? Exactly. This was This was- one of the earliest known souped-up hyper-work cars. Uh, I think, I don't know if it had the missiles or the, it may have had a smoke screen, really, that, that you push. I think they, they did have a button where you would release oil onto the engine block and, and blow uh, a smoke of oil behind it. The police wondered what they were doing there. It turns out that based on that information, they were looking for uh, it was Miraglia was the second man, correct? So the second man who had been involved in a shooting on outfit outfit property of uh, friends with the outfit, and uh, the police confiscated Milwaukee Phil's car and later used it to uh, stalk outfit uh, members. They used the outfit's own car against them. But that, that story is where Milwaukee Phil really came into the public conscience. These two men sitting in the car, it was obvious they were there for some reason. The car was full of weapons, and then clearly within 24 hours, the man disappeared anyway, never to be heard from again. That was Camillus Robertson from Inside the Chicago Outfit, Episode 8. 
Aldericio had his fingers in many financial pies, including some outside of Chicago and inside of Milwaukee. Now, this is very unusual for a very territorial organization. I mean, there was a district boss in Milwaukee who should have taken offense to Phil poaching on his territory. Because of this lack of flack, Milwaukee Phil was shown to be a man of considerable power who made people fear and or respect him. What does this have to do with the Seiferts? Hold on, I'm getting there. In 1967, Aldericio takes over as boss of the outfit. That's boss with inverted commas. There is a caveat on that word, boss, because Tony Accardo is still alive and still looming in the background. Again, I am trying to keep this simple. Accardo retired, but the mob never really lets you retire, and Accardo becomes a dowager emperor laying down the law if he feels the need, and being called on to decide matters that cannot be solved among the active heads of state. Now remember, Daniel Seifert quickly becomes like the son Aldericio always wanted, because Aldericio's son by DNA disowned him and went off to become a priest. Now, in a lot of ways, it was smart. You guys know that, uh, you guys know that when, uh, when I was born, one of the names that was being thrown around, besides Joe, was Felix. No kidding. Yeah, after Aldericio, you know, they were they were very close friends with. Yeah. Um, okay. he, he Aldericio a, really liked my dad. Oh, yeah. He would be a safe person yeah. to be under his wing. And that was Danny's youngest son, Joe, from a YouTube post called Interview with Nick and Joey Seifert, The Underworld, Killers, Kings, and Clowns. When Daniel enters into business with Weiner and Aldericio, there is another outfit up-and-comer who also quickly becomes like family to the Seiferts, Joe Lombardo. Lombardo was nicknamed the Clown because of the goofy way he would joke around with people. In the last episode, we heard from Nick Seifert, Daniel's eldest son, talk about how the Seifert kids remembered their Uncle Joe. Under the outfit boss Aldericio, there were street crews, whose day-to-day operations were dealt with by crew chiefs called capos. Up to about 1970, there was one street crew covering the western Chicago suburbs run by Jackie Cerrone. But about 1970, the territory was split, and the new Grand Avenue crew was headed by Lombardo. The following quote comes from the book, Deadly Associates. With the plans for the new company coming together and the success of that new company on the horizon, Danny asked Emma to marry him. Just prior to the wedding, Weiner invited Danny and Emma to his house for a barbecue. Emma remembers meeting Weiner's wife. She was beautiful, an ex-Vegas showgirl. And there we were, like in some mob movie, out back making Pim's Cups, a drink that was popular back then, while the guys discussed their business. It felt to Emma like she had stepped into another universe. These people had become their friends very quickly, and Danny and Emma started getting used to having a lot of money coming in. End quote. And as a side note, Pims is still very popular in Britain, and I learned to love them while I was living there. It's lunch in a glass. There is a place here in Minneapolis who does Pims in a pint glass. Lord have mercy. Also in that Killers, Kings, and Clowns episode, Attorney Paul Whitcomb makes what I think is a vital point about Dan. You know, what's really interesting to me, and I don't think it can be emphasized enough, is your dad must have been an extremely competent person. He, he especially meets Irving Weiner by doing odd jobs, shows him his what he can do in the garage with right. 
fiberglass and he takes him to the boss of the outfit, the most powerful criminal in the country, just like that. And mm -hmm. your dad turns that into a relationship. I mean, he must have been an incredible man at 24 to be ushered into that kind of a criminal's presence and trusted with his money. So Daniel Seifert has something going on. Continuing from Deadly Secrets, quote, In August 1968, Emma and Danny had a simple wedding in a small chapel, and the reception was held in the garage of Emma's parents' house. Weiner was the only partner who showed up for the wedding, and Emma remembers that Irwin wanted a tour of the house as soon as he got there. I thought that was strange, since it was such a small house. But looking back, now, I'd say he probably wanted to scope the place out. After Danny and Emma were married, they were invited several times to Phil's house in Riverside, Illinois, where he would invite Emma to go into another room and select anything she wanted from some shipments that had come in. There were boxes of clothes and racks of furs. Danny and Phil went and discussed whatever they had to talk about, and there I was with thousands of dollars of women's clothes to choose from, Emma recalls. We had a new car constantly from one of the connected dealerships in the area. I don't remember Danny ever actually paying for a car, or if he did, it was a very low price and he simply paid cash. Warren, still concerned for his friend, repeatedly warned Danny not to associate with these people, but again, Danny refused to listen. He was riding high. He had a lot of money, had the clout and power of his connections, and wasn't about to turn back. Danny had found himself in a unique but very dangerous position. Not only had he gone into business with the mob, but he had also brought them in close to his personal life. They had become family, and through his close connection with Aldericio, there were many dinners with Ayupa, Aldericio, former mob boss Jackie Cerrone, and other mob associates at a favorite local mob restaurant. Danny felt untouchable, but these good times would prove to be short-lived. End quote. This is Nick Seifert on Inside the Chicago Mob. And my dad was initially the guy that started working the business. And then that's when the mob started sending other people, you know, there, like Joe Lombardo and, and the guy Ralphie and different things. And then that's when they were all working the company together. And then obviously getting loans from the Teamsters Union and trying to uh, skim the funds from the Teamsters Union into the company and then you know, sending the, the revenue outside. So that was really a legitimate, you could even say thriving business. Well, they had to, just like Cam said, they had to make it look that way so that it didn't raise any eyebrows, so that they could actually, you know, divert funds to Las Vegas. And, you know, you can't divert funds, you can't get loans from the Teamsters Union and divert funds to Las Vegas with a business that isn't thriving, a business that's bankrupt, you know, now that's going to cause more problems with the IRS than anything because you can't show the money. And they wanted to be able to show the money. Maybe not all the money, obviously, the large sum of loans they would get because it was a few million dollars. And back then, that was a lot of money. So they had to show, you know, that it was a successful business along with, you know, a sister company, Gaylor Products, who was associated with that. And then they... And what did they do? They were in, uh, where, were they in Elk Grove or nearby? Or? They, they were close. Yeah, they were near Elk Grove. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a, a similar company. And what they would do is it, uh, change dyes and... that. Gaylor Products was getting more, was already there, so to speak, in the plastic business. And 
my father at International was trying to get wean away from the fiberglass to get in more into plastic business. And that's how they could interject the two companies together and being able to, uh, both companies getting loans and embezzling money from the Teamsters Union and diverting the funds through Las Vegas. And that's how they used Gala products. Back to Deadly Associates. For taking part in the fraud, Danny would be provided a bonus perk, a monthly payment besides what he would normally make in his own legitimate pursuance of business. This side of the business operations was never revealed to Emma, who simply thought the investments from Weiner and Aldericio had grown the company and secured the much increased level of business for Danny to start making real money. His agreement with his partners allowed him to take part in that lucrative skim. Once Danny had gotten in with Aldericio and Weiner, and the business model for success was spelled out to him, he quickly agreed to be involved. It is arguable whether Danny really had a choice at that point, but the basic reality is that it was far too much money for him to ignore or refuse. Danny was pulling in a hefty amount for simply looking the other way. This led to a lot of extra spending money for the Seaforts. Cars were obtained from mob-related car dealers who would let Danny pick any car from the lot for free or close to it. These cars were then removed from the showroom listing and simply deleted from the dealer's inventory. There were other soft perks as well, such as being able to show up at any connected high-priced restaurant at any time without a reservation and not having to wait. Nick was old enough to remember some of the perks that trickled down to him as one of Danny's children. I remember Uncle Joey, Lombardo, took me and my sis to the circus one day. It was cold and rainy outside, and there was a huge line. Joey just walked up to the guy, letting people in, and he opened the gate for us, and we walked right in and had the best seats in the house right up front. I had no idea what Joey was other than Uncle Joey, but to a little kid, I thought it was really cool that he was able to get us in like that and not have to wait in the rain. But it was another of Nick's memories that would hint at the real side of Uncle Joey Lombardo. Down the street from Dad's factory was a place called Beef and Barrel, where the guys used to get their lunches from all the time. I'd go in and help Dad around the factory and would sometimes go on lunch runs with the guys. Lombardo took me with him one day, and when we got there, he started arguing with the owner. I don't remember the details, but I do remember that it had to do with him owing Lombardo money. Looking back, it was probably protection tax or a juice loan, but I was just a kid at the time and didn't know what was going on. It got really heated, and I remember Joey told him, fuck you, and he grabbed the food and left. Not long after that argument, the beef and barrel burned down. I remember that because Dad actually made the plastic food trays for them. They were shaped like steer horns on the sides. The restaurant was rebuilt a while later. Lombardo and I again went to grab lunch for the factory. Same thing, big argument, ending with Lombardo yelling, fuck you, and leaving. And then shortly thereafter, the place burned down again, but this time it was never rebuilt. Dad used to tell me straight to my face, don't fucking talk about what you know. And that was clear enough for me, Nick remembers, end quote. So things are going okay. Daniel is getting what he wants. The mob is getting what they want. But little bits of things going to shit start creeping in. The feds start poking their noses in. And rumor had it, Tony Spilatro hated Daniel Seifert. For those of you who don't know, Tony Spilatro is infamous in the mobster world, both in life and in death. Joe Pesci's character, Nicky Santoro, from the movie Casino, is based on Spilatro. 
He was one of the toughest Irishmen I ever met. This son of a bitch was tough. Personally, I don't even For two days and two fucking nights, we beat the shit out of this guy. I mean, we even stuck ice picks in his balls. You better hope he gives me a fucking name sooner or I'm gonna give him yours, Frank. Yeah, thanks a lot. But he never talked. I know you would've ratted by now. In the end, I had to put his fucking head in the vice. Dogs. Dogs, can you hear me, dogs? Listen to me, Anthony. I got your head in the fucking vice. I'm gonna squash your fucking head like a grapefruit if you don't give me a name. Don't make me have to do this, please. Come on. Don't make me be a bad guy. Come on. I would tell you his portrayal is exaggerated, but I would probably be lying. Of course, the mob will neither confirm nor deny, so the veracity of some of these assertions are a bit suspect. I probably should have put allegedly in front of a lot of that, but that gets to be rather repetitive. As far as it goes, Spilatro starts pushing the upper echelon to get rid of Daniel Seifert. Aldericio loves Daniel. He won't hear a word of it. Doesn't believe for a second that Seifert would do anything but spit at the feds. But Aldericio goes to jail, and his health is not good. As long as Aldericio is alive, Dan is, mostly, safe. But he also knows that Phil is not going to be coming back. He's going to die, and then Dan is going to die. Quote, on September 25, 1971, after spending over a year in federal prison for bank fraud, Aldericio would die. No longer protected by the top mob boss, Danny's respect waned among the other associates. Phil's former influence with International Fiberglass and its other owners was no more, and Lombardo stepped up his role in taking the reins of the company's illegal operations. Danny was quickly losing control of his company, and it became clear that his remaining partners were raising the volume of illegal activities to new levels. Within months after Phil's death, Emery calls, Danny told me how the payroll for International had become astronomical. He knew there was now more going on than even he knew about, and he became very uneasy about it all. End quote. They knew that my dad was pissed about cash, about the money, you know, that was going through the International. They didn't, he didn't feel like he was getting well compensated. He didn't like the idea because this was his future. He didn't like the idea of them, so to speak, sucking the cash out of the business. And then if the business went bankrupt, he had nowhere to go. It was his name on everything. So it was just like when they buy a restaurant or something and they just add up the charges and then they burn the place down. Mm. That's a true story because that's exactly what they did to International Fiberglass. They ran up the bills. Once the IRS started giving them a hard time and complications, then it was my dad and, and Lombardo that says, hey, listen, let's torch the place. That was Nick Seifert again in Killers, Kings, and Clowns, and back to Deadly Associates. Quote, when the feds approached Danny at his favorite breakfast place one morning, showing him photographic evidence of his involvement and threatening to take him down with his mob partners if he didn't talk, he knew the good times were over. He could no longer turn to the mob, and he didn't trust the feds. If what the feds told him turned out to be true, he was looking at years behind bars for his involvement and an uncertain future for his family. Additionally, it was looking like Cerrone, whom Danny had never liked to begin with, was a candidate to take Phil's place as mob boss, as he held the reins prior to Phil's leadership. This pitted Danny against one of the most powerful men in the Chicago outfit and Cerrone knew just how much information Danny had on the operations of International Fiberglass and on all the gangsters who were involved with it. Seemingly overnight, Danny found himself completely alone. He needed to figure out how to make his next play to extricate himself, 
and he refused to be intimidated by either the mob or the feds. He wasn't yet convinced that the feds had enough evidence to convict him, and he knew he needed to make a definitive statement that rang loud and clear to his partners. Danny decided that the only way to survive this entire situation was to play by the mob's own rules. It was time he raised the stakes with his partners and left exactly where he stood on the business and with the feds. From Killers, Kings, and Clowns. So then my dad um, was not spooked. You couldn't really spook him. He was cocky and confident, and he thought he was a tough guy. So then what happened was he went back to the mob and said, hey, listen, guess what? We got a problem. The feds are now starting to bark up this tree with the Teamsters loans coming into International, and they were funneling the money from International Fiberglass to Las Vegas. And so my father was constantly talking to Lombardo about it, and Lombardo says, well, we'll play it by ear. We'll play it by ear. So the mob, the higher people above uh, Lombardo, which was Jackie Cerrone and then um, Tony Arcardo, weren't so confident that my dad wasn't going to talk. And they, they were concerned because at that time, my dad was a tough guy. He wasn't able, they weren't able to intimidate him because they tried to intimidate him and threaten him and everything else. And my dad would just come back because I would hear the phone calls at, at night. People would call the house and try to scare him and intimidate him. He'd tell them the same thing. One time I heard a conversation where they threatened our family. And my, I heard my dad on the phone tell him, hey, listen, you tell those guys they got a fucking family too. And I'll do whatever it takes. I don't care. I know where this is leading. I'll do whatever it takes. So they knew the reason why they had to kill him is because they knew they had a problem. And more from Deadly Associates. Quote, up until Aldericio's death, the Seaforts were close to Lombardo, but once Danny left International, he would learn firsthand about Lombardo's skills. Under orders from the top, the clown began his intimidation efforts against Seifert to keep him from talking. One incident in 1972 involved Lombardo sitting in a car in front of the Seifert's house at the time of day when Danny's children were supposed to be coming home from school. Emma saw Lombardo, immediately called the police grabbed her gun, and rushed her children upstairs into a closet to hide. The police contacted Danny, who drove to the Bensonville police station to fill out an incident report, in which the lead investigator noted for the record that Lombardo has the reputation of being a hitman for the mob. Danny arrived home later that evening with a full police escort, surrounded by multiple officers and FBI agents in plain clothes, several of whom were carrying shotguns hidden in their trench coats, end quote. According to her sons, what Emma didn't know at the time, and frankly no one knew until recently, was that Lombardo actually had tried, and tried, and tried to talk to Danny about going against the outfit. Lombardo actually cared about Dan and his family and spent way more time and effort on trying to talk him out of his suicide mission than probably any mafioso has ever given. Not knowing will foster a hatred for Uncle Joey within the Seifert family that will last until after his death in 2019. But it is this caring that will, allegedly, save most of their lives. But that's later. After Aldericio's death, Danny spent his time trying to figure out how to survive. From Dangerous Associates, quote, 
Danny had come up with a plan where he would show up at International, walk inside the company, and, while wearing a ski mask, empty a full clip from his 45 over his partner's heads. He knew his partners would realize it was he who did it, which was exactly the point. He wanted them to know he could hit them whenever he wanted, just like they could hit him. Lowering or raising his line of fire just a few inches would mean the difference between a warning and a lethal hail of bullets. Not only that, he wanted them to also know he was willing to take it to the next level, to the death if need be. He would refuse to let them intimidate him. To cover the problem of a witness seeing someone buy a ski mask, he had asked Emma to sew it for him. But this led to another set of problems. Danny had to reveal to his wife the danger he increasingly felt he was in. Emma recalls how Danny approached it as a big joke. He really thought the act of shooting over their heads of his partners was going to be fun. He felt it would give him some power back, even if only for a short time. Shortly thereafter, Danny chose a morning, walked inside the plant, and emptied his forty-five as planned. He exited the building and then returned within minutes. His stunned partners stared at him as Danny walked back into the factory and calmly asked, Who was that guy that just brushed up against my shoulder when I walked in? End quote. I don't even know what to say to that. Back to the book. That the FBI was looking to bring down everyone in the company, Danny thought that if they burned down the factory, the feds would only have the evidence they currently possessed, some of which they had presented to him. He also felt that this evidence most likely wasn't enough to convict him or his partners. In addition, his partners had the local authorities on their payroll, and they knew nothing would come of the fire in the way of charges. Once Lombardo had agreed and presented the arson plan to the other partners, everyone got on board with it. Danny left International Fiberglass in December 1972. In February 1973, the local papers reported that International Fiberglass had mysteriously burned to the ground the previous night. That day, Danny took his family for a drive in the car and stopped at the charred remains of his company. His son Nick recalls, I remember my dad sitting in the car with all of us, silent. He looked at the burned-out building and then started laughing. Mom just stared at him as he kept laughing and then pulled away. Joe and I sat quietly in the back seat, and we didn't dare say a word. I can still remember seeing my favorite bike leaning against the wall, blackened from the fire. For me, that image signaled the end of my childhood, because after that point, I was never able to really be a kid anymore. End quote. At this point, Danny and Emma start a new plastics company in Bensonville. Quote, what no one knew, not even Emma, was that on May 9, 1973, Danny had spoken to the IRS investigators and given them an affidavit regarding his involvement in illegal funds linked to international fiberglass, end quote. To that I say, maybe. There is enough, again I say alleged, evidence to suggest that the outfit had connections within the FBI and local government. It wouldn't surprise me if one of those contacts leaked some information. Regardless, Danny also had his nemesis, Tony Spilatro, who I'm pretty sure was pushing to be given the opportunity to make Danny disappear. That I based mainly on Spilatro's nature, which was to push, push, push about everything. Read The Enforcer by William F. Romer Jr. That will help. And on September 27, 1974, Spilatro will get his way. But that's for next time. If you have any useful thoughts, you can reach me on Twitter at Dispecta, D-I-S-P-E-C-T-A. Please be respectful or I will block your ass. I leave you with Hendrix and I will see you next time on It's All Relative. Mm-hmm.
That's what I'm talking about.